Four. Let's open our scriptures to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. J.I. Packer wrote, Opposition is a fact. The Christian who is not conscious of being opposed had better watch himself, for he is in danger. As the saying goes, a Christian, you're either entering temptation, exiting temptation, or are in temptation. Temptation is a part and parcel of the Christian life. As a matter of fact, when you become a Christian, actually temptation increases. I think that's what Paul is getting at in Romans 7 when he writes, I was once alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came and sin came alive. When you become a Christian, things you never thought were sin and temptation begin to become temptation. In other words, a war begins. And in fact, Paul goes into that on in that very chapter to explain it as a war between the spirit and the flesh, between the new man and the old man, between sanctification and sin, between the old you and the new you. And the tip of that spear of sin is temptation. And we see this very battle being waged in our Savior's life on the pages of the Scripture that we read this morning in chapter 4. Verse 1 says, Then Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Please pray with me. Father God, I I ask you, and Spirit, I implore you to make these words live. Help us, Lord, to be changed by them, to be moved by them. Help us, Lord, to know how to better recognize temptation and overcome it. For that is what we truly want in our new man. Help us in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look at verse 1, you see that the Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted. First, we have to understand there is something bigger going on here than just Jesus showing us how 
to resist temptation. There's something bigger going on here. There's a bigger narrative going on here. Yes, we learn about temptation and how to resist it from our Savior here, and we'll explore that in a few minutes. But there's a much bigger drama unfolding that we have to know and acknowledge. Because in one sense, what we, what we see Jesus going through here is unique to Jesus. It's unique to Jesus. It's, it's Christ's unique temptation. When Jesus told the Pharisees in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you will find eternal life. But it is they that bear witness to me. Jesus was telling us that the Old Testament is a story about him. It's where we learn about him in his coming. It's a preparatory book. We saw this in our study in Hebrews, didn't we, brothers and sisters? That's the book that we just, we just studied together. And there Jesus as, is shown as the fulfillment of so many things. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath, if you remember. The Sabbath prefigures the rest, the final rest that we have in Jesus Christ. We see this in, in Moses. Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the ultimate mediator between God and man. That he is the fulfillment of the Passover itself. If we trust in Jesus' shed blood for our sins, death actually passes over us. And we go from life to life. All these Old Testament threads come together to a point in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' temptation, there's another thread that we're meant to see here. That faith, that Jesus is the faithful son that Israel was not. Jesus is fulfilling what Israel could not. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is, is called God's son. One of the famous Scriptures that we read almost on a yearly basis around Christmas time is Hosea 11.1, which reads, When Israel was my child, this is God speaking, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. Israel, God's son, was unfaithful. And Jesus came to fulfill and be faithful where Israel was not. We're meant to notice this right here because Jesus is thrust out into the wilderness, right? We see that. To be tested, at, just like Israel was after their release from Egypt. And so too, Jesus is led out into the wilderness and, and tested 40 days. But where Israel wanted to go back, Jesus stayed. Where Israel chafed against their leadership, Jesus trusted. Where Israel grumbled, Jesus trusted. Israel failed as God's son, but Jesus was the faithful son. Jesus came to be the son that Israel could not, to remain in the desert, whatever the circumstances. He came to be the obedient and faithful son and earn the righteousness that we could not. Because just as the wilderness taught the Israelites, only true and faithful sons make it to the promised land, right? Israel failed in that whole generation, was barred from the promised land. You see, that is meant to teach us that only obedient and 
the perfect are allowed into God's heaven. Imagine a person this week shows up at your door. This week, he shows up and he's coughing and he has a runny nose and you see some glistening sweat on his forehead and some matted hair and you know that he has a fever and he wants to enter your house. He asks to come into your house. How would you react? Would you let him in? Would you just stand aside and wave your arm and let him come into your house knowing that those are the symptoms of the coronavirus? No way. So too, God cannot let anyone into his heaven who has the sin virus. He sent Jesus to walk perfectly under the law for us and we're seeing that exemplified here in Jesus Christ in the desert. To be tempted in every way that we are, yet not sin. So that he could become, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, the righteous, righteousness for us. We become the righteousness of God because of Jesus. He sent Jesus to come and touch us and contract our sin virus. Isn't that amazing? And die for us in our place. And if we believe that, when we show up at heaven's door, Jesus does stand aside and wave us in because we have the righteousness of Christ. We have our sin paid by Jesus' blood, by his death. We have our sins forgiven. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is offered to everyone if they turn from their sins and trust. So Jesus' temptation in the desert are unique in one sense, yet his temptations are universal. We face temptations. And this text helps us to understand the nature of temptation and how to overcome temptation. First, the nature of temptation. Let's take a look at that. As we look at how Satan tempts Jesus, we can learn a few important things about temptation. And the very first thing we realize is that God allows temptation to enter our lives. I mean, that's what we see in verse 1, right? Jesus is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. God led him into the wilderness knowing that Satan would tempt him. Now, we have to put this in perspective. We know what James 1, 13-15 says. It's very clear, it's explicit about God's role in temptation. There we read, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. As this scripture makes explicitly clear, God does not tempt us. But he does allow temptation in our lives. 
He does lead us in the direction where we are, our trials are and our, temp, and our testing, and we are tested. In fact, the Greek word used here, tempted, in verse 1, can also be translated very easily tested. R.C. Sproul wrote, God sent his son into the wilderness in order that he would be tempted by Satan, and the purpose for the temptation was to test him. Sean O'Donnell, in his commentary, says it this way, Temptation is God-ordained, but not God-inflicted. Just as it was with Job, Satan is allowed to have his way with God's man. And that's the same for you and me. God does not tempt us, but he sovereignly allows temptation to test us, to strengthen us, to purify us. If you've been studying ahead in our memory verse, in 1 Peter, you, you come upon verses 6 and 7 that explains it this way. Though now for a little while you have had to suffer griefs of all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. God is doing something good in us through our trials, through our tests. He's doing something good in us. He's refining us. He's encouraging us. He is strengthening us. So what good is God doing in your life right now through the coronavirus pandemic? That's a test. It's God-ordained. He's sovereign. He has a purpose in it. He has a macro purpose, and he has a micro purpose in your life. Perhaps he wants to deal with your proclivity to fear. Perhaps you're one of those people who easily tips into that bucket. Or perhaps he's testing, do you really trust me? Perhaps he's testing your ability to live under authority. I mean, there, there's a lot of things coming down our way. A lot of things being mandated. How are you living under that? Perhaps he wants you to deal with your selfishness. Perhaps you're running out to the grocery store and buying all kinds of things so that you're okay. Perhaps he's testing your love for others. What are you willing to, what lengths are you willing to go to if things get bad to love your community? One thing's for sure, God will use this sovereignly because he ordained it to purify us, to test us. I pray that we, we all go through this test well. We also learn by observing what Satan does, secondly, that temptation most always looks good. What was so wrong about Jesus doing just a little miracle working here to, to feed himself? I mean, he was hungry. Feeding yourself when you're hungry is not a sin. It would be good for people to see Jesus saved by angels. Imagine how it would help his ministry. 
How bad could it be that Jesus reigned on earth right now? After all, I mean, Jesus is God, right? Jesus is king. He's the rightful ruler, right? That's not wrong. Each time Satan tempted Jesus, it looked good. It sounded good. It felt good. Satan never tempts us with something that looks bad on the outside. He never does. Eugene Peterson says, every temptation that comes to me is packaged as good. And we're told in Scripture, aren't we, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He clothes himself in good. See, Satan never offers us a rotten apple, but the most pristine, beautiful, shiny, perfectly ripe apple. But our part is discerning and remembering how filthy that sin really is. Recently, a middle school in Oregon faced a unique problem. A number of the girls began to use lipstick and would put it on in the bathroom. After they put, it on, put on their lipstick, they would press their lips to the mirror and leave dozens of lip prints. Finally, the principal decided something had to be done, so he called all the girls to the bathroom and he was met there by the custodian. He explained that the lip prints caused a major cleaning problem for the custodian. To demonstrate how difficult it was, he asked the custodian to clean one of the mirrors. The custodian took out a long-handled brush, dipped it into the toilet, and scrubbed the mirror. Since then, no lip prints have been found on the mirror. When tempted to sin, remember how filthy it is. As we look at Satan's temptation of Jesus, we also observe that Satan knows our weaknesses. He always makes it look good, but he knows our weaknesses. Jesus was hungry, so Satan tempts with food. Jesus had a human need, just like you and me, for acceptance. So Satan tempts with a spectacular show of power. Jesus wanted a comfortable, easy life. He was fully human. He wanted the life that we long for too. Give me comfort. Give me ease. He didn't relish the next three years of rejection and shame and suffering. He wasn't looking forward to that. I'm sure he was tempted right here to grab the crown without the cross. Right? So Satan tempts him by offering him the world. It's all yours. No suffering. No shame. All power, prestige, all honor, all glory. What are you going to pick? Just as Satan knows Jesus' pressure points, he knows your pressure points. He knows your pressure points better than you do. And he'll take advantage of them. That's why it's necessary to know those weaknesses we have, those proclivities towards sin. Proverbs 30, 7-9 is one of my life verses. In it, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. 
Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor your name. The author of that proverb is a man we know very little about. It We just know his name, Augur. We don't know anything about him. But what we do know about him, he tells us right here. He had a proclivity for greed. And so he knew that and was able to pray to God to help him in that temptation. He was able to, to keep watch over himself because he knew that temptation. What are your weaknesses? Let me ask you a question. Do you even know your weaknesses? Do you know your proclivities to sin? Is it fear, lust, anger, self-righteousness, gossip, flattery, greed, passivity, laziness, pride, comfort, pleasure, judgmentalism, crude joking, lying, bitterness, divisiveness, dishonesty, boasting, power, prestige. You can be sure that Satan knows your proclivity to sin. We also see here that Satan tempts by implanting doubt. He implants doubt. Notice the first two temptations. Satan says, if you are God's son, or if you are the son of God, verses 3 and verses 6. See there, Satan is implanting doubt that Jesus is God's son. And notice, if you just look back in your Bibles to the last verse in chapter 3, Jesus has just been declared by God the Father in heaven as his beloved son, whom I am well pleased. And so Satan starts just eking away at that, at that assurity that he's God's son by questioning his sonship. This is a satanic strategy that reaches all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Remember what Satan said to Eve? Did God really say? He implants doubt. He plants the seed of doubt. That's part of his strategy. Isn't that what Satan relentlessly does to you and me? He he implants doubt again and again and again. God tells us he cares for us. Satan whispers, if so, why would he put you through such suffering? God tells us we are his beloved. As a matter of fact, three times in the Old Testament it says we are the apple of his eye. But Satan tempts us by saying, well then why don't you have all that you want? If he loves you so much. God tells us he's always with us and will never leave us. Satan said, Satan whispers in our ear, then where is he? God tells us we are his sons and daughters. 
But Satan constantly whispers the same words he used with Jesus. If you are really God's son, dot, dot, dot. Where's God now, he says. Why are you suffering so if he loves you? Why don't you have what you want? Why can't you see him? Why are you under so much temptation? Are you sure that you're God's son? Isn't that a doubt that he he plants in our minds again and again and again? Are you sure you're saved? Brothers and sisters, do not allow Satan to implant doubt. We are called to live by faith. Let me say that again. We are called to live by faith. Do you know what that means? You know what kind of living that calls us to? It calls us to live when, when we entertain that doubt, when we hear that doubt, whatever it is, we are to counter it with the word of God, with the promises of God. What God tells us is true. Yeah, we can't see God. But God says he is as real as this podium. And we trust that and we believe that. That's living by faith, brothers and sisters. We believe what God tells us, even when we do not see it, when we do not feel it, when we can't touch it, even when Satan whispers his lies. Lastly, we need to know that Satan is absolutely relentless. Satan is absolutely relentless. Look at verse 11 with me. There it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. In Luke's account, we read it a little differently. It says, Then the de- when the devil had finished all his temptings, he left him until an opportune time. Satan never gives up. D.L. Moody said, My friends, you are no match for Satan. And when he wants to fight you, just run to your elder brother, who is more than a match for all the devils in hell. That is true. Don't use Jesus' words here as a magic formula. Get away from me, Satan. Or what he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Don't use those words as some kind of magic formula that that will cast Satan away from you. We're We're not in Hogwarts here. Yes, he who is in you is stronger than he who is in the world. Yes. Yes. If you resist the devil, James says, he will flee from you. Yes. But flee to Christ first. You're no match for him. Flee to Christ. Flee to the one who is stronger than Satan. Flee to him who has defeated Satan. Not only here in the desert, but on the cross 2,000 years ago. Brothers and sisters, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. Realize you're no match for Satan and flee to Christ and hide under his protective wings. Now these are just a few of Satan's strategies of temptation. By no means are are they meant to be complete. But God wants us to see them and know them. That's why they're put here. That's why Satan's strategy is outed. 
He wants us to know the strategies of Satan so that we can defeat him. There's a battle in in the Civil War called Antietam. It was fought in 1862. It lasted for 12 hours and ranks as the bloodiest war, uh, battle in the Civil War. What has confounded military strategists for years was how a mediocre Union general like General George McLennan was able to end the brilliant Confederate general Robert E. Lee's thrust into Maryland and force him to retreat over the Potomac. Well, it was finally found that that it was made possible because two Union soldiers found a copy of Lee's battle plans and delivered them to McClellan before the battle. Likewise, you and I are, are no match for Satan. But like General McClellan, our enemy's plans have fallen into our hands. And God wants us to know that so that we have the knowledge and discernment and wisdom when those temptations come into our life, and they will. so that we can overcome that temptation. And that's what we're given next here. Overcoming the temptation. In Jesus, we can see how to defeat this temptation. And the first thing we learn here is we must desire God above all else. You want to defeat temptation? God has to be your greatest desire. This is where understanding Jesus' unique temptation is helpful here. In Jesus' first temptation, Jesus is being tempted like Israel in the wilderness. He's being tempted by asking, are you content with God's provisions? When you're hungry and thirsty, will you continue to trust God? Israel failed. But Jesus didn't because he desired God above even the biggest desire at that moment, which was hunger. And our temptation is Israel's and Jesus's as well. No matter what, will you continue to trust God? Is faithfulness to God number one in your life? Do you desire God above all else? Above reputation? Above comfort? Above even a deep hunger that is tugging at you at that particular moment? Because that's what temptation is. A deep hunger to have whatever it is at that particular moment. For most, if not all of us, the answer is no. That's why we sin. Henry Nouwen wrote, I cannot continuously say no to this or no to that unless there is something ten times more attractive to me to choose from. Saying no to my lust, my greed, my needs, and what the world offers takes an enormous amount of energy, he writes. The only hope is finding something so obviously real and attractive that I can devote all my energies to saying yes. One such thing I can say yes to is when I come in touch with the fact that I'm loved. Once I've found that in my total brokenness I am still loved, I become free. 
Isn't that beautiful? You know what makes a successful, enduring marriage? It's being loved in spite of your brokenness. In marriage, your brokenness is on display. And if your spouse loves you in spite of it, your love and devotion increases, doesn't it? You know what makes a great church? It's being loved and accepted despite your brokenness. In body life, your brokenness is on display. At least it should be on display. And if we continue to love each other in spite of it, you know what happens? Your love and devotion to the body increases. Now think of God. He knows you intimately, explicitly, ultimately. He knows your brokenness completely. Nothing is hidden from him. He sees you and he goes, you're a mess. But he loves and accepts you entirely. He loved you when you hated him in salvation, didn't he? Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were still hating God, Christ died for us. And he continues to love and accept us, even though we're continually unfaithful to him. Isn't that amazing? We're continually unfaithful to him, and he loves us and accepts us. Listen to the amazing love found in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Isn't that beautiful? He tells us that there is nothing we can ever do that will ever cause him to stop loving us. He'll never stop pursuing us. He'll never, ever, ever cast us away. That's beautiful. That's real love. And as that kind of love works its way down into our souls, you'll begin to live not for your momentary desires anymore. Not for that bread alone anymore. But desire God above all else. That's how you overcome temptation. That's what Christ shows us. He also shows us another way. He begs us to know our scripture. You want to overcome temptation? Know your Bible. Know scripture. We have to notice that Jesus counters Satan's temptations every time with scripture, right? But in the second temptation, the devil uses scripture to tempt him to sin. He uses scripture to tempt him to sin. Did you notice that? In verses 5 and 6, Satan quotes scripture to tempt Jesus to throw himself off the temple. And he'll be caught by angels. That's what the Bible says. He tempts him to draw people to himself through sensationalism. Now pause a moment and listen. Satan knows scripture better than anybody in this room. Anybody. He knows scripture better than 
whoever your hero is in the the faith. And he will use that knowledge to his advantage. He will woo you to sin. He will actually woo you to sin through Scripture. That's exactly what he's trying to do here. It is so easy to make Scripture say almost anything you want if you're prepared to rip it out of context. D.A. Carson is famous for saying, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And that's true. If you don't have the context for what you're saying, don't say it. You better know what that scripture means. Take, for example, Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This scripture was never intended, never intended to be some type of salvation guarantee for our children. Never intended that way. But many take this scripture and twist it into an ironclad agreement between God and them that if they take enough time, if they take care to train their children biblically, if they do everything right, then their child is safe. So parents believing this catechize and they bring their kids to church and they attend Sunday school and Wednesday night youth group and they do sword drills and they take them to, to Awana and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they read this as some kind of promise from God. It's not. You're totally ripping that out of the context of wisdom literature. In context... It is just encouraging parents to to build into their children spiritually. It's, It's telling parents, take care of not only your kids' physical needs, but their spiritual needs. It's actually encouraging them to do exactly what Deuteronomy 6 tells a parent to do. (laughs) Nothing more, just in a different way. Think of Ecclesiastes 11, cast your bread upon the waters and after many days you will find it again. Some preachers twist this into a plea for money, don't they? They tell unwitting people, many of them Christians, that if they give, they will be financially blessed. It will come back to you. It will come back to you many fold. If they tithe, don't worry, you'll be blessed. God will bless you with health and comfort He'll bless you in this life. But Jesus never offers us that kind of life, does he? I mean, you just read you just read Luke and you realize that he beckons us to come and die, right? Jesus says, you're going to suffer like I did because I'm your master and no servant is above his master. As a matter of fact, Romans 8, 17 is says we are guaranteed glory only if you suffer for the name. We could go on and on and on how scripture can be twisted. Some twist the man's spiritual headship into excuse for tyranny. Some take what Paul says about unending forgiveness and grace and twist it into a license to sin. Some, take, some like Satan, right here, take God's promise of blessing and protection 
and twist it into an IOU. If you're obedient, God is on the hook to protect you and give you a good life. And what Jesus shows us is you have to know Scripture well enough to be able to overcome that temptation. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us that do your best to present yourself to God. Let that sink in for a moment. You're going to present yourself to God. So do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Correctly handles. Not just handle it. Correctly handle it. And that involves work, brothers and sisters. It just does. To know the context of the proof text you're using so it doesn't do harm. To read your Bible enough to know when what you're thinking it says is contradicting what the rest of Scripture says. To know Scripture well enough so that you don't put God to the test. Lastly and briefly, we must know our life's proper orientation. If you want to overcome temptation, you have to know your life's proper orientation. We see this in the third temptation where Satan offers Jesus the world. He offers him kingship. He offers him rulership. If Jesus will worship him, if Jesus will orient his life towards him and the world, the temptation here is for Jesus to forego the cross for the crown immediately. And as I said before, Christ knew what was ahead of him. And Satan whispers into his ear, you don't need to go through all the discomfort and rejection and shame and suffering and hunger and asking people for money and not not having a home, not knowing where you're going to lay your head. You don't have to go through all that. You can have your reward right now. I can give it to you. Don't go through all that. Don't go have it now. Brothers and sisters, that, that's what he whispers in our ear all the time. Don't live a life of other-centeredness and sacrifice and suffering. Don't live a life being considered less than intellectually. Don't live a life like Jesus with rejection and discomfort and shame. Don't wait for your reward that, that by the way, you can't see or touch right now. You can have it all right now. What you can see is real. What you can't see is unreal. That's what he whispers again and again. Live your life for what you can get now. Reorient your life to here. All those whispers are from the pit, saying the same thing that Satan did to Jesus. Worship me. Because worship is not just an activity we do here on Sunday mornings. It encompasses the orientation of your life. That's why it is far more telling who you are and what you do 
in the 167 other hours of this week than it is in this hour. It's far more telling. It's wonderful that you serve here. We're blessed because we serve here. But do you serve your brothers and sisters the other 167 hours? Or is this the only hour that you do that? It's wonderful that you sing praises of God here. But do you sing his praises? Do you even mention his name the other 167 hours of the week to your friends and family? It's wonderful that you give God your full attention here. But do you give him your full attention the other 167 other hours of the week? It's wonderful that you're oriented towards God here. But what about the other 167 hours? Our whole life has to be one of worship. I'll end with this. Helmut Tillich wrote, Jesus rose up from the place where the kingdoms of the world shimmered before him, where crowns flashed and banners rustled, and hosts of enthusiastic people were ready to acclaim him And he quietly walked the way of poverty and suffering to the cross. That is worshiping the Lord your God with all your life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word and spirit. Use it to change us, to reorient us to you. We're so drawn to the world. We're so drawn by the whispers of the evil one. Help us, Lord, to look and keep our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name, amen.